five, four, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to the Agency Podcast. Eugene here in Toronto. And Kenny Mings here in Chicago. Hi, Eugene. Hi, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, Great good to know you're out there listening. <laughs> good to see you, too. Uh, did you have a good trip back to Chicago? I did. I drove like a maniac. I started just after 5.30 in the morning. It was a great day. Good weather, thank God, because the weather was so bad driving north on the way there. And um, just had a wonderful day. Nice lunch. Nice driving. Got home like at 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something. It was fantastic. Was able to, you know, unpack and get some groceries going and stuff. Yeah. We have a couple of fix-its to do. And one of them uh, I'm going to tackle. We got a message from one of our... Uh, our Patreon supporters, um, we had tried to shut off Patreon during our hiatus, and and one of our supporters said, um, I just got charged right through the hiatus. Yeah. So we don't know what happened. We're going to look into it. And if you supported us, well, we weren't providing content. We're going to give you your money back and uh, uh, and invite you to uh, to support us going forward. But uh, right. we don't know what happened and uh, we hadn't realized it. So if that's happened to more than one person, sorry about that. We're going to fix it. Yeah, I'm going to go in there and fix it up and we'll refund it. Thank you so much. My fix it is that I confused when we were talking on the episode about Midsummer. I said Ari Oster also directed The Witch. He did not. He did Hereditary. Very scary film. Highly recommend it. But um, Robert Eggers did The Witch, who also did The Lighthouse. Uh, we talked about The Lighthouse here. I'd seen it when it first came out. Uh, and, uh, that was Remember that one? It's black and white, flying sperm, two guys trapped on an island in, in I don't know, the 1800s or something at a lighthouse. But um, so he did The Witch, and it's beautiful looking. That's the one I was afraid to watch alone, and I, I watched it for the set design and fast-forwarded so I didn't get scared. But uh, another very interesting um, director up there, Robert Akers. Thanks. <laughs> I would uh, I would like to mention that I saw a documentary the other night uh, that uh, I want to invite you and our listeners to also watch, and maybe we could have a discussion on it mm-hmm. um, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called The Pez Outlaw, and it's a documentary <laughs> about an odd individual who got involved in collecting first cereal boxes and then Pez dispensers, Ooh. and then discovered that in Europe, there are all kinds of Pez dispensers that you can't get in America um, that collectors want. And Mm -hmm. this fellow and his son proceeded to go to Europe to try to find the Pez factory and buy some of these. And the, uh, the film is about this fellow and how his little hobby of buying European Pez dispensers (laughs) Um, got like completely out of control and what the Pez company in America decided to do about it. Uh, It's a fascinating look at uh, that industry and also a fascinating look at a really, really interesting individual who, who's uh, I suppose 
he has some mental illness, which mm. um, I think led to his obsessive uh, compulsive collecting uh, <laughs> and which led uh, to the whole story. Why are you telling me that? <laughs> oh, I don't think you're an obsessive compulsive collector, Candy. No, not anymore. I, I have been. But yes, I hear you. I'm looking in the, look at the camera. If you were here seeing our photos right now, we've got the video on it. I've got piles of books behind me here. That We don't consider books collecting. That's right. Yeah, they're books. Um, it sounds so cool. I'm going to watch it. You know, we go to a place usually every year. It's a diner in Albuquerque when we're at the pop culture convention, which is the Southwest Popular American Literature um, Association convention for academics and scholars and researchers that I go every year. And it's called the Route 66 Diner. And the um, it's just like out of, you know, Elvis area, like Elvis era. And it's, you know, turquoise and diner. And all around the walls are Pez collections. Well, it's a big deal, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. And I understand that. I mean, what isn't to love about Pez? You have these crazy little characters. And when you you click their neck back, they give you a candy. That is just a brilliant idea, right? They They seemed so fancy and expensive when I was a kid. I mean, I got them occasionally, but not like... I didn't even know you could collect them. I never thought of something like that. <laughs> People collect the darndest things. Yes. The darndest things. So uh, we're going to talk about that uh, that film on a future episode. So yeah. I wanted to mention it to our listeners who might want to see if you can find it. I think I found it streaming on Prime. I don't know where you're going to find it in your area. It could be yeah. anywhere. Yeah. I, I'm completely bamboozled by all the streaming services and who has what. And well, it's... Yes. It's a frustrating time when you're looking for a particular uh, entertainment item. It is. And you know what's interesting about that is, as you know, back in December, I stopped getting Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO. I mean, when I tell people that, they look at me like, you monster. <laughs> <laughs> because how? what are you watching? And you know what? It has been weird when someone says, hey, watch this. And then it's like on Prime. I'm like, well, I'm taking a hiatus. However, I am not suffering because I have Disney, I have Hulu, I have Paramount and Peacock, So we and I have cable. I don't have enough time to watch all the stuff, but what I will do is probably in a month, a couple of weeks or a month, I'll get rid I'll close off Disney and Hulu and and go back to, and, and I have Showtime, and I'll go back to HBO and Prime and Netflix. I mean, I just simply, I watch a lot can't watch everything all at once and i it felt good to sort of save that money a bit you know that's, yeah, that's not sure. that much money it does add up it adds up and at one point and i have apple tv as well so i have more than enough to watch um speaking of things you've watched you know um and i wanted to tell you um i forgot to tell you i saw operation fortune and that was a movie that came out a couple of weeks ago and i went with a couple of our our community on the agency, people who listen, Tom and Jim, and Jim who took the photo that's on our agency cup of Eugene and I, and Steg and I went to see Operation Fortune, an awful lot of fun. It was um, an action film by Guy Ritchie, uh, great characters, great action, a lot of fun. We all really enjoyed it, um, and I highly recommend it. 
And I know you haven't seen it. You probably won't. So I won't well, get I have you. an irrational fear of Guy Ritchie. <laughs> I couldn't so begin to explain it, but I can identify his films like within about four seconds. And it's like, nope, can't watch this. So it's totally hilarious. unreasonable. He might it's, be a great filmmaker for all I know. I just can't watch them. I know, and so I, I'm not even going to try to explain myself. That's all right. Everybody has their thing that they just can't cross the line. <laughs> and, of course, I went, I don't even want to say pre-opening night. It was the night before it officially opened, I saw John Wick 4. And it was fantastic. It was everything I could have hoped for. Um, the... You probably don't know much about John Wick. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. You have not seen it. Well, it's with my best friend, Keanu Reeves, stars in it. Playing and Charles Bronson. Yes, correct. So the first movie, the way we find out about John Wick is that he is a retired hitman. He is a world-class assassin. Who retires from being a hitman? He did. He I mean, really, up. it's they say hitman, but really it's murderer. Retired murderer. <laughs> True. Like Hitman sounds like it's a job. Yeah, it's true. Um, however, they do make a great storyline. Many, many movies have the character of a uh, a murderer slash um, hitman. I guess because they're getting paid, and we know they get paid, and they're set up. They're they're part of this uh, uh, wonderful capitalist economy we live in. So um, only you know where murder is the final uh, paycheck. So he 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 retires. He has a lot of money. He has, he's met a wonderful woman. They marry. They have a beautiful life. And unfortunately, she gets cancer. And, and she passes away. And when she dies, what she does is she figures out a way to get a puppy delivered so he's not alone. And this puppy arrives at his beautiful mansion because he was a very rich hitman. And this puppy arrives and he's very, you know, love affair ensues. You know, a cute puppy. It's like a baby mini beagle. But what happens is he runs into some... Uh, bad men who are kind of like mafia people and uh, they're the son of a big mafia person and they joke about his car they want to steal his car and when he gets home after a few days his house has been he goes home one night and his house has been ravaged and his puppy is dead and so now Helen you know revenge well, I, I guess that they they regretted that huh uh, they certainly did because it took several several uh, movies to you know, take care of this karma that was unleashed at ah. his retirement. And what's interesting about John Wick is they have created a, a universe, a world that looks a little bit like ours, but slightly different. And all of these um, oligarchs slash mafia guys, they seem to own hotels and they are some of the most fabulous hotels in the world. Um, and like the one in uh, Manhattan uh, it's a beautiful hotel that has a Citizen Kane Xanadu size fireplace on the roof. I mean, it's it's utterly stunning. And um, so you've got all these great sets and lighting and action and Keanu Reeves. Uh, you're on his side because they killed his dog and that's unacceptable. Yeah. And um, so, so hang on here. Yeah. If they put... Keanu Reeves and Liam Neeson and Charles Bronson uh -huh. in the ring and have a death match. Who's going to win? Great question. Hmm. I, I can't answer that. I would have said Keanu Reeves, but I, I, I don't want to answer that because I, I don't really know. 
I don't know. It's a great question. But I think Keanu Reeves... I mean, it's one of those things about... Uh, he has it's a... like, what's the difference between a, a, a Panzerato and uh, a Calzone well, and yeah, a Stromboli? And I'm, also, I'm thinking about the kind of training each of them have. And I think Keanu just has a lot more uh, physical training at his means. He... Yes, but Liam Neeson's got the best voice. He does have the best voice. <laughs> and Charles Bronson had that bad mustache. That's true. Why did they let him have that mustache? Surely someone would have said, Mr. Bronson, sir, don't you think it's time? We'll give you a better mustache. I know. But no. I guess that just came with the territory. Yeah. It was part defining his character. Um, so a really wonderful film. Highly recommended. It was so exciting to see it in the theater. Uh, the soundtrack is stunning and compelling. Great experience. All right. Well, maybe I'll watch the John Wick uh, films. Yeah, you, you 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 might tolerate them. <laughs> I don't well, know. I really don't. Well, know. you know, every now and then I watch something that I wouldn't expect that I would watch. For yeah. instance, when I saw the uh, the trailers and ads for Ted Lasso, I just like dismissed it. I just thought I'm not oh, going to like this, and oh, so I was going to watch it. And after like a million people told us how great it was, oh. uh, Sheila and I decided to uh, to watch it. We watched a season of it. And have uh, have quite enjoyed it. It's quite quite a charming uh, kind of uh, show that highlights, I suppose, the differences between American culture and mm -hmm. UK culture, uh, and brings this kind of positivity to the show, which is really ex extremely compelling and charming. Yes, I really love it myself. Big fan. I just love it. And um, yeah, he's um, he's a kind of a character that um, he's almost he's almost spiritual to me because he wants to do the right thing and he wants to he knows how to be with people and how to communicate with them and how to find out to make a team work and a community work and how to fit in and make the work. He makes the workplace a great place. Um, he's not perfect. He's got some flaws and some dark sides that we start to see a little bit, but they're certainly not like, you know, evil. He's not Walter White or anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's for sure very charming and pretty funny. Yes. Uh, and at times kind of uh, slightly bawdy, uh, lots of profanity, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, delightful well, yeah. use of the word wanker. Yes, I I love it. You know, they've developed great characters, great personalities, and and that's half the battle. That's what makes you want to enter their world. You know, you want to hang out with them. They are really, really interesting people. And I mean, doesn't London look pretty? Um, who knew that London is like a Disneyland version of London? Yeah, and, and it's and at, at the heart way. of it, I think, is it's uh, a show about. Hmm, can we say leadership? Yes, it is a show about leadership. And the thing about and the thing about leaders is yes. that I think people forget is you can't be a leader unless you have followers. And so he's someone who comes to the job mm. without any followers in the yeah. new job and just gradually starts to win people over. Yes, correct. Um, so that's kind of fun. Like it's an interesting... They do not like him. Pardon they don't me? like him. They don't like him at first. No, they don't. But they don't care. Uh, he's pretty insistent. Yes, he is. And uh, you're right. That's exactly how to be a leader and how to uh, compromise and still get things resolved. Um, it's a great, 
show for showing how maybe you don't get everything you want and you have to negotiate and fit in. It's really fantastic. And still what you get is love and community. You know, you, you make a new family. Um, the second season, I really also really enjoyed the second season. I've understood some fans didn't think it was as strong, uh, but there is one episode that is so worthwhile and it's a, it's a parallel story unexpected by a character you don't expect to happen. And it's so worth that um, episode. I don't want to say because the elation I felt during that episode was so wonderful. And I think it also partly had to do with the pandemic. Um, just the setting and everything. We can talk about it if you get to season two. Well, we will watch the second season for sure. And then we can talk about that at, huh. uh, at some more length. Uh, Sheila and I also got sucked into the fourth season of Succession, which started uh -huh. on uh, Sunday night. Oh, yeah. And it was good. Okay. It was good. We saw all our favorite characters we love to hate, <laughs> and they were all as awful as they have been in the, the previous seasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's a tough that's a tough journey to be on. It's like um, It's like Ozark, and it's like Jim Thompson. You know, Jim Thompson, not one redeeming character. Even the children were horrible. And um, when you're watching Succession, who are you bonding with? What are you looking for? You're, you're watching the uh, sociology of the rich. Yes. And maybe we like to see them have these challenges since they've got so much money. Yeah, we. I find found myself kind of bonding with Greg because he was the outsider to the family. Yes, He's within agree. the family, but also the outsider. But yes. you know, I mean, Greg's character is is really kind of limp as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just not as awful as everybody else, mm -hmm. but he's still pretty awful in a different sort of way. Yeah, I thought he was going to be some kind of a, an outsider and a relief, a relief, a drama relief, but uh, probably not. <laughs> he's just a matter of finding out where are you corrupted and how far are you going to go. Yeah. Um, I have a strong feeling family. in watching it. Well, it was as compelling as the other seasons and all the episodes. I had the very strong feeling that they could have ended it at the end of last season. Just had an ending which ended it. And everyone would say, ah, that's that's right. Mm -hmm. It's the end. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels to me like it's being dragged through another season when they've already done all the stuff that they could do. It's right. just they're going to have some plot twists. And that's the same criticism I had with Ozark. Please, how many plot twists per minute can you insert into a TV show? When I like a show, though, I mean, I become a fan of the show. I, you know, maybe I want the swag from it. Maybe I want to dress like the people in it. Well, I they bank on that, right? They that's bank the, on it. But it's, I'm not a fan fan of everything. I, I love Succession. And maybe I would get a hoot out of uh, seeing them at Comic-Con or something. You know, maybe at one of those um, situations where you meet celebrities from a show. Um, but, you know, something like Star Trek, I mean, there's not enough of it that you can make for me. There's just not enough. As long as you've got that science fiction, really good writing of science fiction, some appealing characters, I'm going to be your fan forever. And the same with the TV show Lost. I was in it to win it. And um, it could have gone on another 10 years, I think. It went on for 10 years. And Did it when really? it ended, I think it went on for quite a long time. Wow. Maybe maybe six years, maybe seven years. I think I watched part of an episode and I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. 
and I just wasn't willing to invest in any more time in it. Well, you never you it takes a long time. I mean, you don't know what's going on because it you have to start to think: Is this are these people in a coma? Are they in an alternate reality? You start to realize they're not really in the same world we're in um, somehow. And, you you know, then you've got to care about them enough to go through all their backstories. And that's the thing. When you've got a, 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 that kind of approach to things with all the character development or backstories of people, you can you can really you can stay with it if you're if you love the premise of the show. Um, do you think Sopranos was too long? No. Isn't that interesting, though? Um, but Sopranos had a very broad. Uh, they could deal with thirty years of gangster films before them, to riff on, to make acknowledgement of, and then develop all those characters were super interesting. Yes, and you've plus got, they had the element of uh, psychoanalysis going yes, on at the same yeah. time, which yes. I think helped elevate that because it. Uh, it gave us a different kind of perspective mm -hmm. uh, on the Soprano character. True. And eventually taught us, was there a cure for him? No, there is no cure for him. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got a, he's got a level out. He has to time out. You know, that's the only way, you know, someone at, at the conference I was at in Albuquerque on a Cormac McCarthy panel gave a great paper. I, I may have mentioned it. Um, it was one of my favorite papers about psychopathy and Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men. And basically people who are studying psychopaths have said it takes about two or three people to stand up to them. You can't stand up to them. They bank on one to one. And um, he was discussing how in, in No Country for Old Women is that Anton couldn't, he, he met a couple of characters that he, he didn't kill because somebody else came in the room or someone else was a, in the room. And um, a psychopath, they don't have to be a murderer. They could be somebody you work with. They don't have to all be killers, right? Um, and if someone, so basically what the research is showing is that as long as two or three people stand up to them, they will be how would I say go extinct? But we have a society that keeps allowing them to function. But as soon as the two or three people stand up to this situation, whether it's in conflict or one, you know, in life, they're going to be timed out. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to be go extinct. They really believe it's possible for them to go extinct. As long as you have two or three people that stand up to them together. Because they can't play the system then, you know, it has to be, they have to be in an environment where they can't play the system. You know, sometimes I see that in the workplace. Sometimes you've got that kind of personality that's so selfish and, you know, bosses use them sometimes. They let them get away with things. They kind of keep things in a certain level of chaos and disorder. I think bosses appreciate some bosses, ter terrible bosses. <laughs> So this week we have a guest and yes, we we're, we're going to revisit the topic of witchcraft, which, yes. uh, which we had a whole episode on with, uh, uh, a wonderful professor Irma from, uh, from Laredo. That's right. Uh, and this is going to provide another perspective. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about our guest? Yes, I met Peyton at uh, the conference in Albuquerque a month ago, and I was so taken with her paper. She was uh, talking about women's portrayals 
in movies as witches and the history of that portrayal. And I was so impressed by her energy, her attitude, and her research, primarily her research. So I was like, please, please, please come on the show. And so she did. She's going to be here on this episode. I'm so glad that we're going to have our listeners hear her. Hey, we're really happy to welcome Peyton McCarty Seamus to the podcast. And Peyton and I met um, in the smoking section at the conference, maybe. Do we say that or not? <laughs> Outside the hotel. Yeah. And we um, we kind of hit it off. And then she told me when she was presenting. And I was able to hear your presentation. I was really taken with it. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that just to get us going? Absolutely. So the presentation uh, was basically a quick overview of a paper I wrote that inspired um, a book that I'm writing right now um, about the relationship between witchcraft in horror films, uh, psychedelia, mm. and political movements, particularly feminism, um, and just looking at how those things intersect over time. Um, and it's been a very fun project, and I've been really excited about the response so far. Excellent. I forgot about the psychedelic uh, aspect to it, of course. That does make sense. And, um, you know, I know some of the films you you have been talking about um, have some psychedelia in it. So tell us first, how what made you notice the psychedelia in the films? Was it like always there was a ritual of witchcraft or spell making? Absolutely. So that kind of came later. I had been tracking a pattern at the ends of films where, traditionally speaking, if you're watching a film about witches from the 50s, say, you know, you will see at the end a woman getting burned at the stake. It's usually a tragic story. It's conservative. It's restorative of, of the quote unquote natural order uh, predicated on like traditional Christian values, the Hays Code, whatever it is. Mm. That does continue long after the Hays Code is gone. Um, but something that struck me in the kind of A24 horror cycle of the mid-late 2010s is that image had completely shifted. Um, and rather than seeing a woman violently brought to her end, you see a woman laughing in the face of the destruction of the entire world around her. There's this kind of apocalyptic quality of embracing Satanism uh, that really foregrounds like female and female and feminine is a complex issue when it comes to witches because it's predicated on medieval notions of gender. So in the book, I work on dealing with that and contending with that, but it foregrounds uh, feminized agency. The thing that struck me later uh, when I was watching a movie that people simply do not, in my opinion, give enough credit. I've gotten into many uh, bickering matches over Richard Stanley's uh, Color Out of Space from 2019. Mm -hmm. um, but that movie in particular is a highly psychedelic film and it gestures towards the counterculture uh, in myriad ways, both textually and visually. Um, you know, Tommy Chong is in it, right? Like there are, there's just a very explicit connection being made between this little, uh, you know, punk teenager and uh, the people who came before her. But the imagery is just profoundly psychedelic and, um, you know, just like violent pinks and purples transforming the screen. It's it's super fun. Um, and I started tracking that as well. And I found that it's pretty consistent. Um, what I use to define psychedelic is a broader um, metric, perhaps, than what we traditionally associate with, because the argument I'm making is that um, psychedelics are used to broaden what we can conceive of as acceptable and actively bring the characters out of the normal world mm -hmm. 
um, in order to kind of set the stage for this non-hegemonic counter-patriarchal destruction uh, and societal dissolution. So you have films um, like the Suspiria remake that employ these associative dream sequences, this odd sense of timing and um, and explicit uh, drug use or bewitchment, right? But then you have films like The Witch, uh, which not a traditionally psychedelic film in any in any conceivable way. That being said, as with the other films, and you can look at Midsummer as an example of this um, as well, you know, Hereditary has this as well. That movie um, features a witch making flying ointment mm -hmm. um, in explicitly in a scene. Uh, you also have references by Robert Eggers uh, where in interviews where he says that the rot, the mysterious rot on their crops is uh, ergot, which is uh, has been theorized by some to be the hallucinogenic uh, fungus that could have prompted the uh, the witch craze of the Salem witch trials. Um, oh, interesting. Is that the same as is what they call corn smut? I think corn? so. Okay. And ergot is associated with the chemical compound of LSD. Exactly. Ah, the, the, it exactly. was pulled from ergot, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. So you can draw it through, and it might not be the exact same thing because uh, typically ergot is grown on uh, barley and rye. Mm. But the basic principle there does get at the the historical trajectory I'm trying to build out because witches are pretty consistently associated with a proto psychedelic ethos, mm -hmm. right? They make potions. Um, a lot of witch trial. Uh, like testimony that you see, uh, describes out-of-body experiences, the sensation of flying, transformation, visual hallucination, um, and things to that effect, right? So if you think about it, you know, if we're connecting the Salem witch trials and European witchcraft to a hallucinogenic uh, and natural kind of herbalist culture, and then we move forward, and we see how the figure of the witch was reappropriated in the mid-late 1950s through the early 1970s um, as a feminist figure mm -hmm. and as a countercultural figure. Uh, you can trace that through with the with actual LSD. Mm -hmm. um, and you can do the same thing with the mid-late 2010s, where there has been a growing uh, interest in witchcraft over the past decade. Uh, and a resurgence of the use of the witch as a uh, figure of protest, as a figure of feminism. But at the same time, you'll see all of these, uh, this renewed interest in psychedelics, or what what do people call them now, entheogens, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, the, there's a through line that's really worth exploring as a way of kind of getting out of our own way and embracing something else. Very interesting. That is quite, that really struck me. Um, as being a great observation. And I had never thought about flying. This is so weird. Flying is a metaphor for tripping. You know, it's, <laughs> it's obvious now when you say it. Yeah. Um, why do you think in 2010, around that time period, there was a resurgence in, in witchcraft practice? In practice, it's a little more complex than in the films, but I use a similar model where, you know, if we think about politics as cyclical, right, and culture as kind of this give and take back and forth thing. I use an essay uh, by a film scholar named Karen Hollinger um, in my, in the bulk of the uh, first paper that I wrote, and she's talking about the way that 
um, cat people, the two versions of cat people can tell us a lot about the politics of the 1940s versus the 1980s. Um, because the original cat people is, you know, it's about, interestingly enough, although it goes unmentioned in that piece, uh, Irina in that movie is characterized as a witch. Uh, she's a cat woman, but she's from a village, uh, you know, controlled by witches. So that's, that's its own thing. But um, that film foregrounds her as a central threat, right? She is a sexual force. Um, she represents non-phallic power. Um, and her agency is the thing that disrupts the whole movie. She's stalking these women. She is not sexually available to men. Um, and while she is defeated at the end of the film, she's really allowed to to scare people for the entire film. She's tragic, of course. She doesn't want to be doing what she's doing, but it says a lot about um, how women were in the 40s, in this moment where women were in the workplace, where it was necessary for women to be empowered for the good of society that she's allowed to be scary meanwhile in the 1980s version which i still love um <laughs> in spite of myself i think it's delightful that being said irina now has an older brother irina herself no longer kills people she kills chickens she is dominated by her brother who kills people mm -hmm. right and the argument hollinger makes is that it's a product of this you know women had made too much progress in the 60s and 70s and now we're in the 80s and we have to reinstate more traditional gender roles in face oh, yeah. of a culture and he's the money maker not her yeah, well, Marvin Harris, you know, an anthropologist that I read a lot of his books, um, he said that really it wasn't altruism that allowed women to be equal is racism, because people mm. didn't want to hire black people, they'd rather hire a white woman. Mm. And that maybe it wasn't just letting women have power. But yeah, the money making part that the brother gets the power of killing people, as a mm -hmm. metaphor, not a, you know, why do you think, why do you think it's in horror, we can have these discussions? Horror is a just a fantastic outlet for things because, and Stephen King points this out and a lot of people point this out, but it is a fundamentally conservative genre, right? Like usually nine times out of 10, and that's what makes these movies so interesting, order is restored. Mm. You have fun when you watch the monster freak everyone out and tear, tear things up. But ultimately at the end of the day, the loving couple, you know, the, the teeny boppers on the beach, whatever it is, will get together and live happily ever after. Um, and, you know, there's, but there are a lot of outlets there wherein you enjoy those moments of destruction and um, you can really kind of plumb what scares people. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's been described as a uh, political tool, as a bellwether, you know, and it's a much more ambiguous thing because necessarily the structure that we're familiar with is um, centers the the anxieties of a particular culture. Um, so in Dance Macabre, Stephen King talks about the way that you can kind of trace political cycles through horror cycles. Um, and Robin Wood says the same thing with the return of the repressed as a concept. But, you know, thinking about um, the Cold War 50s, right? Um, that being like, you know, you have all of these horror at party beach type, mm -hmm. the nuclear monster thing. Um, and I argue that the mid late 2010s is a moment where the anxiety as you can see in the Cat People remake in the 80s, the anxiety is feminism, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the next chapter I'm going to be writing is on the 80s, so mm -hmm. that's a little more. I need to work on that before I can speak about it in detail, but the 80s are going to be fascinating. So because fun. where are the witches? Where yeah. did they go? 
Yeah. It's, it's the 1980s. Yeah. Satanic panic is happening. Theoretically, <laughs> there should be witches everywhere. Mm-hmm. But that is simply not the case. Mm-hmm. Instead, you have a renewed emphasis on possession movies, right? And as um, Carol Clover argues in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, possession movies are just movies about men in crisis <laughs> with a young girl as a cover story. Wow. Um, yeah, but, you know. Well, maybe it, maybe the, the witches yeah. just became hidden. Yeah, exactly. Except for Elvira. And oh, yeah. all love to Elvira. Right, because she was big in the 80s. That's true. She was. Yeah. But if you think about the Elvira film, mm. she is not threatening. She not. is funny. She is sexy. Mm-hmm. And she is very, uh, she's not eager in that film to take on the role of her scary older witch <laughs> aunt i think it was but yeah oh interesting and interesting that eventually elvira came out christine peterson came out as gay yes it's pretty which was pretty much a secret you know for Mm -hmm. her for her va 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 voom persona you know Mm -hmm. uh, for men yeah (laughs) absolutely you know eugene and i both took a course with robin wood that's how old we are not together separately we took classes with him he changed my life oh my god wow he made me understand movies really do have these crazy subtexts yeah i think dinosaurs were still roaming the earth (laughs) he showed us cat people Mm. both one yeah among many other films Mm -hmm. lots of hitchcock and lots of hitchcock yeah so i love hearing you say his name Um, no, this is so interesting. So tell us about, now, I think you used the word, you know, we're in Canada, we speak French, jouissance. <laughs> Do we need A to word that I butcher every time. <laughs> yeah. Didn't you, did, did you not use that word for the, the imagery of the women in like Carrie, Suspiria, Midsummer? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the anxieties around uh, the witch as an archetype uh, represent Kristeva's notion of the object, right? Like it's the unincorporated, pre-social, gross, femi- like female body, right? And vulva means valve, as uh, Barbara mm-hmm. Creed points out. So there are a lot of connections to demonic possession and the female form, right? And you can think about possession, mm-hmm. uh, which is its own film with its own context. But, you know, the the sexual intercourse with the female body to disgusting monster uh, thing is very, very intertwined. Um, so if these women represent the abject monstrous feminine, wherein men are unable to control women sexually, uh, politically, economically, um, what I'm saying that these women do is represent Kristeva's notion of jouissance, uh, wherein I'm... Um, all of these things come to a head and are allowed to explode. Um, And she talks about it in relation to uh, really interestingly literature um, and says that jouissance is connected to non-traditional forms of kind of, uh, what does she say? Hallucinogenic literature, which brings us back to psychedelia. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, she describes how literary form 
when the abject is allowed to run free, it begins to break down. You have, uh, she, and she uses some really beautiful language. I think she says things like buzzings and rupture. It's very tactile, even mm-hmm. though she's talking about a, you know, a literary form. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we bring those things together, as these films come to a head, as their structures start to break down, you know, as the psychedelia really begins to kind of, uh, pervade uh the imagery of the film and the men usually begin to die um (laughs) you find these women at the end of the day laughing (laughs) and she describes jusance as characterized by laughter right because it's the ultimate anarchistic irrepressible expression of abject joy she calls it um really gorgeously and i love this phrase so much but she describes ruissance as a laughing apocalypse Um, (laughs) and what better way to express describe a film like midsummer the witch but a laughing apocalypse yes so would you say the character the female character in midsummer um unwittingly becomes a witch yeah it's complex you know like they take the drugs they they're in they're in you know Sweden, which is psychedelic world. I yeah, guess. why Sweden? We want to ask. Yes, that. why Sweden? Do you know why Sweden? We want to know why Sweden. What did Sweden ever do? <laughs> I'm fairly certain that someone just asked Ari Aster to make a movie in Sweden. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's what he said about it. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We we're just talking about that film, and and Katie refers to it as as murder at IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we we had just watched that, yeah, and, like, and it seemed that it seemed that she was like in distress um, because of of her well her sister yeah. killing herself grief. and her family grief. Yeah. grief and the horrible boyfriend, um, and it's it's like she doesn't she doesn't plan on on this transformation, um, mm-hmm. but but kind of falls into the community, mm-hmm. gets embraced by the community. I- that might be important to not plan it. I would say that might also be a narrative as well. That, you know, transformation yeah. or paradigm shifts don't happen when we know about them intellectually. They happen when we let go. That's mm. where the psychedelics, I would say, come in. Absolutely. Vulva and valve. And I just want to throw in the whole fluids, body fluids, because mm-hmm. there is a little bit of a body fluid vibe. And then definitely in, in with making potions, you're mm-hmm. making these tinctures that they're not appealing. They've got mm-hmm. a kind of a repulsion, just like mm-hmm. the leaky women leak, you know, <laughs> breast milk and periods and etc. Well, you know, one of our, our most famous hallucinogenic <laughs> mushrooms, the Amanita muscaria, the Santa Claus mushroom, mm-hmm. uh, it, um, oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought about this. <laughs> I'm, and I, have, I, haven't been, I, haven't been, I haven't been eating mushrooms. I know, either. not yet. Um, <laughs> Oh, yes. What I was going to say is that the Amanitas, um, if you look at an Amanita at the at the base of the mushroom, it has a vulva. Really? Uh, it has a wrapper. Wow. It has a wrapper around the base of the mushroom. So if you're a, a, a forager, mm-hmm. one of the ways that you identify all the Amanitas is that you look for the vulva at the at the bottom. Do you mushroomers really say that? Yeah, we, we, oh. we call it a vulva. Wow. That's fascinating. <laughs> and that and on, fascinating. on the Amanita muscaria, it's it, it's not a full wrapper. It's um it's like it scales around the base, but it still does the same the same thing. It it uh it you know it it uh it wraps the okay. it wraps the stalk. Oh wow or, or the stipe, huh. yes. Wow, okay. I did not know that. How would I? He totally. has mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't need Amanitas because 
Um, unless you really boil them and boil them and boil them and boil them over and over again, they make you really, really sick. And mm. I don't like really the exchange of like <laughs> having to get that sick to see God. Yeah, yeah. Oh. At what cost? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't mind flying with the Jaguars, but I don't want to get all sick about it. <laughs> no, totally. And the psychedelic experience does have a lot to do with uh, the kind of necessary letting go that you see in these movies you know she they all go through a lot of trauma um in order to kind of get past you could call them their their cultural hang-ups right like you know the the yes. literal puritan context of the witch wherein she's being you know uh scapegoated by her mother her father's too passive to do anything about it everyone assumes that she's a witch the whole time mm. right because she's this young woman coming into adolescence for the first time and that's a continual thread you know carrie being carrie. a great example when puberty starts then a woman is a threatening figure <laughs> because then she has sexual power and her body is now abject right yeah. so all of these figures have to go through a lot before they're really able to embrace a new role and sometimes it's more deliberate but almost always it is by a form of necessity so you know thomason and the witch has the beautiful line that um that is going to serve as the title for my book where she declares herself that witch. She says, I am that very witch. Uh, even though she is not yet at that point a witch to our knowledge, she embraces that role in order to keep her siblings in check because they're teasing her and because they're not minding her and they're not doing that chores. And she says, I do have powers and I will eat you <laughs> if you don't do what I say. Yeah. So the strategic redeployment there is really powerful. But in terms of Midsummer. It's a much more instinctual process where the whole film is just about uh, Danny, who's just wonderfully played by Florence Pugh. She's the best part of the film, in my opinion. And her family is dead. And she is just there seems to be no outlet in our Western, you know, world for her feelings. She's only ever allowed to experience her pain in private. She goes to bathrooms and she's constantly fleeing social situations where she's described in no uncertain terms as annoying. Yeah. There's, there's no point talking to her boyfriend about it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And Christian is just like a, a an insanely, deliciously obnoxious character. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he really is. <laughs> Throughout, right from the first time you meet him, it's like, what a loser. Yeah. Yes. But I was saying to Eugene that. For me, the scariest part of that film was that dynamic of the bros and yes. the female who wants to fit in or you think you're fitting in and you don't know that they have, you feel like something's wrong. You're mm -hmm. intuiting. They've been talking about you. They are mm -hmm. dismissing you. You just don't see it happen. And uh, now Eugene will understand because he watched Midsummer how that feels for a woman. <laughs> it's like, why didn't she break up? Because it wasn't tangible. It wasn't like concrete evidence. It was unconscious that they were. And in addition to that, there's, you know, the outlet for, uh, and again, I'm using biosensualist terms, right? But for female connection is so limited in the film, right? Like the nuclear yes. family and the way we structure our society is fundamentally limiting for emotional connection within the film. It's only when she visits the Harga community mm -hmm. that you have this very scary you know, so-called uh, feminine collectivity, right? With that beautiful scene where they're all screaming together and absorbing that emotion. Um, and even the men, you know, her Swedish friend whose name escapes me asks her, you know, 
do you feel held by your boyfriend? Does he feel like home to you? And those things are just not allowed to her in the schema that we have. And that's part of why she's able to embrace this new community, violent though it may be, you know, uh, foreign to her though it may be, it provides something that is absent in her world as we as she understood it before. Well, in her world also, I mean, they're so daft. They think we're we're gonna we're gonna study the quaint suicide cult. Um, mm -hmm. whereas the you know the community is like, well, we've been waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The yeah, the satirizing of ethnographic academic practices yes, that are yes. being derided as like overly intellectual you know totally impractical whatever it is it's all about the feelings and they're just totally incapable of seeing the power of feelings uh and the power of intuition and the power of ritual they also take a shot at academia with yes. the, with the two kids fighting about fighting a, who gets yeah. to do the dissertation yeah yeah, 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 yeah. also take a fair shot at um alternative education i i i thought of um waldorf because waldorf does a singing dancing um practice the mm. Waldorf schools you know um and so there was kind of a there was kind of an insult there or a satire there too but I wasn't really sure where he was coming from with that or if he just studied folk you know he studied a lot of folk tradition mm. dancing what do we do with what we're looking at this portrayal of women in horror as witches what do we do with it how do we learn uh do we force our children to watch these movies <laughs> I think the thing that's really interesting about it is a movie like Midsummer is in many ways very sexist, right? Like women are irrational and weird and collective and can't control their feelings. And she's, you know, you could read this film in a way where it's like, she's so out of control that she kind of passively falls into a suicide cult, mm -hmm. right? And when I first saw this movie, I hated it so much. Oh, wow. <laughs> it Interesting. Body. It yeah. just, it was so annoying to me because the men were so annoying because yes. it's such an abrasive film. It is. Interesting. But, you, know, you know what? Well, I had to watch it in two parts. The first half of it, I hated. I I, I watched it and it's like, yeah, well, I saw Wicker Man. I, I don't need to exactly, see yeah. this. And then the <laughs> second half was marvelous. I love the second half of the film. Um, yeah. And it really made it a lot better for me. <laughs> Even Absolutely. even though I wanted to edit it a little bit. Yeah. They they no, forgot I'm... to send it to me for editing. <laughs> um yeah, fun fact about Midsummer. I don't know if you guys remember the trailer, but um originally it was intended to have white bars instead of black. Oh. Which would have been a really interesting concession to non-traditional form. And yeah. then either the studio or Ari Aster was like, wait, this looks like a PowerPoint. This is a terrible yeah. idea. And they mixed it. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the Wicker Man, I do a lot of um, comparative analysis there too. Um, and something that's really striking about it in terms of uh, seeing how the depiction of masculinity has changed yeah. is if we think about, I don't remember what his name is in the Wicker Man. It's been a second. I think it's Howie. Yes. Um, the cop? Yeah. The cop? Yeah. Yeah, it is Howie, yeah. Which is yeah. interesting. How? <laughs> Howie it. versus Christian. Yes. The central yes. figure of yeah. masculinity. Yeah. yeah. Um, Howie is buoyed by his religion, mm -hmm. and he gets this moment of very noble, prayerful uh, martyrdom at the end of the film, mm -hmm. right? It's true, two true. men in contest with each yes. other. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and it's delight. It's so good. It's such an amazing movie, and it's yeah. it stands out for uh, using um, a man as the as the central figure. But if you compare Howie's death to Christian's death, Christian has been impotent the entire time. Howie attempts consistently to change his fate, and it is beyond his control. But there is hope for him either in the afterlife or you know his fundamental dignity and integrity holds up throughout. Whereas Christian duped passive burns to death with a look of complete surprise on his face <laughs> well and he had to be told you can't move and you can't speak yes yeah <laughs> that's gonna happen to you yeah christian was just he was what an awful character just, i didn't mind him burning either really <laughs> no completely there's if a someone's got to burn it's gonna gotta be him <laughs> yeah. you know it's funny because and carrie when i was a kid i saw carrie and it was just my girlfriend and I were so elated by her. We just mm -hmm. thought how fantastic just have that blood and kill them all. And, <laughs> and I mean, I, I definitely had that at the end of uh, Midsummer too, that deliverance, really. Yeah. Female deliverance. And that's what we do with them. It's, yeah. you know, these movies, horror movies are outlets. And Midsummer and The Witch and Hereditary. Yeah. I'm afraid um, of Hereditary. I'll try and watch it, but I'm afraid. <laughs> Hereditary, yeah. Hereditary is excellent. It's, it took me, I didn't see it in theaters. And when I, when I watched it for the first time, I was like, oh, this is a good old fashioned slasher. It's like an older kind of filmmaking. It's fabulous. Mm -hmm. But the feeling that you had watching Carrie is exactly what I want to highlight with these movies. It's like, they're a product of masculine fears. All of these, the directors are male auteurs from Richard right. Stanley and Ari Aster. They're all male auteurs. They're yeah, and made analyzing and capitalizing on our anger and pain. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Barbara Creed in The Monstrous Feminine argues that like depictions of the Monstrous Feminine have nothing to do with what women are actually like. It's all about what men are afraid of. Yeah. Right. And that's absolutely well taken, but it's more complicated, I think. Okay. Because, you know, when you or I or anyone watching The Witch feels some catharsis <laughs> and really gets some joy and glee out of that, right? There's a profound potentiality mm -hmm. in The Monsters Feminine. It shows that men are afraid of something that we have. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a form of power. And mm -hmm. it can be channeled in different ways, but these kind of cathartic expressions of vivid, violent joy in the face of the systems that hold us yes. all down uh, is in itself a really profound thing. Yes, yes. And maybe men could learn from it too because patriarchy is bad, bad for men as well. I mean, yeah, they're the ones who die in these movies. They're the ones who die, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta go for that chansons. <laughs> wow, I can't wait to read your book. Has, I it, can't has it got a title yet? Uh, right now, it's called I Am That Very Witch, uh, Gender, Genre, Psychedelics, and Abjection in the 2010s Witch Horror Cycle and Beyond. Love it. <laughs> that's a, that's um, a title. And yeah. can we ask, how is um, your studies going right now? Do you care to tell us on this podcast? <laughs> you can say fuck off if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, sure. It's been it's been good. I'm, you know, finishing up my last semester of classes for my master's. Um, and then I write the next chapter next, you know, the next chapter next semester for this book. And it's been really fun. Good. Yeah. Great. And how's New York City treating you? 
New York is great. It's finally warming up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was in Florida last weekend and, you know, coming back to 30 degree weather was kind oh. of a heartbreak, but, yeah. but yeah, it's been great. Well, you give me hope for the future. <laughs> You're amazing. And I'm so glad you came to, to visit with us and, and talk to us. And when, when your book is out and available, we'd love to have you come back and promote it and talk a little bit more about it. If your publisher yeah, lets you. <laughs> That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, good. And anytime you want to email us, let us know what movies to watch. I will watch Hereditary. Even I'll have to watch it in the morning. Because <laughs> it's less scary. Well, because I used to love horror films, but now I'm afraid. <laughs> no, that's yeah. That that's what they're supposed to do. For sure. All right. Any other final points that you don't want to forget, or I don't want to forget? We covered it. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. We're back at headquarters <laughs> and we have listener mail. Cool. Fine. Uh, this it. is from, this is from our, uh, our friend Vox, um, who sent us mail titled the art of misdirection or the first casualty of war is truth. Mm. Mm. And it's a lengthy email. I'm going to read it. He has a numerous, a, attachments in it which i'm not going to share but if anyone wants them they can email us and we'll send them off his attachments as well sounds cool hello agents candy and eugene it's good to have you back in the saddle again at the conclusion of the segment on daca braca when you meandered into the war in ukraine you said something i very much agree with that being that you favored that being that you favored peace, not war. War is the failure of diplomacy. Indeed, I wrote my member of parliament, a member of the ruling party, to tell her why I was opposed to this war and why I believe Canada's response has been misguided both in terms of Ukraine's history and our own. To understand the genesis of this war, We must understand that history did not begin on February 24th, 2022. The nation of Ukraine came into existence in 1991 after a referendum in which the inhabitants voted by a 90% majority to leave the Soviet Union and become a nation in its own right. It should be noted that In the areas with an ethnic Russian majority, the vote was also in favor, though in those districts, only by 55%. Gorbachev agreed to it, and the nation was born. Shortly thereafter, it was decided that the new nation would require a constitution. When it started to look like the country would do what so many nations around them had done and have a single national language, that did not spark outrage in those areas with ethnic Russian majorities. They figured that, as with their neighbors, they would be allowed to have official regional languages. Referendums were held in these areas in 1994 to so designate Russian and pass with the same majority of 90% as the 1991 vote. Notably, the Ukrainian parliament did not approve or disapprove of those votes, but waited for the constitution to pass. It passed in 1996 and made no mention of regional languages. That resulted in resentment, even anger, as many people could no longer work for or even communicate with their government because of the language barrier. 
naturally, a nascent movement arose to separate from Ukraine and align with Russia. This may have been countered by an attempt to solve the problem legislatively. In 2012, a law was introduced to allow Russian to be used as an official regional language. That was quickly repealed with the 2014 revolution that overthrew the president, Yanukovych. And if that wasn't enough, the Supreme Court would later rule the law unconstitutional. The 2014 revolution led to two districts in the Donbass declaring themselves breakaway republics. Ukraine wasn't going for any of that and sent in the army. Shortly after, Russia entered Ukraine ostensibly to come to the help of fellow Russian speakers who claimed they were being persecuted and wanted out of Ukraine. That conflict was ended by the second Minsk Accord in 2015. And uh, Vox provides uh, a link. The fourth key point from the attached contemporaneous BBC article stated, Four, from the day one of withdrawal began a dialogue on the holding of local elections in line with the Ukrainian law on temporary self-rule for parts of Donsk and Luhansk. There will also be a dialogue on those areas' political future. Now let me turn to what one of the principal architects of the accord, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, had to say about the accord back in early December 2022. The 2014 Minsk agreement was an attempt to give Ukraine time, Merkel told the weekly DZ. It also used this time to become stronger, as you can see today. Uh, more links. The truth is that Ukraine never did anything to organize an internationally monitored vote in the area. We can say that was because there was an ongoing conflict in the area, or we can say that because no talk of organizing a vote took place, there was ongoing conflict. But certainly from what Merkel said, it seems Ukrainians negotiated in bad faith. Anyway, I noted in my letter to my MP that at one time in our history, Canada had a tradition of being peacekeepers. We also have a history of allowing a province which wanted to leave our confederation the absolute right to self-determination. Hmm. We only asked that the question be posed fairly and said we would respect the outcome. I also noted the recent example of the UK swallowing, excuse me, allowing Scotland, swallowing Scotland, <laughs> allowing Scotland to vote on their independence, adding that is what democracies let people do. Sorry for my misreading there. Uh, the response I received after nearly four weeks spent more time thanking me for writing than anything. It dealt with nothing I wrote and only said Canada stands unequivocally with Ukraine. Let me say I'm not anti-Ukraine or Russia in this. I'm pro the people of both nations, and the very best thing that can happen for them is for the war to end. War never benefits anyone but a few people who make scads of money from it. Everyone else loses. Best wishes, Vox. Well, thank you, Vox, for your Thanks. detailed uh, email. And uh, I'd like to invite 
Our listeners, if you want to weigh in and also send emails, we'll read them. Um, we're not going to get into a lengthy discussion about um, geopolitics and war. Uh, it's a little bit outside uh, the purview of our podcast, but uh, uh, Pandora's box has been opened there and we will read your... Uh, and I think you opened it. <laughs> When you went to see the uh, band, no, just because... Well, uh, you know, I I have to say, I had not expected when I went to see the band how politically charged the the show would be. Yes, Uh, yes. You know, it just hadn't occurred to me. I was familiar with the band from several years ago. And I, you know, I don't know what the lyrics to their tunes (laughs) are about because I don't speak Ukrainian. Right, right. um, it hadn't occurred to me that the band would become overtly political mm, in mm, in mm. Uh, in the face of the war that rages in Ukraine today. Well, I think something you and I, um, thank you, Vox. I do appreciate the letter. I'm praying for peace too, because I don't know what else to do right now. And um, on that note, I think it opens up a topic that we could carry on from that concert you saw in a future podcast. Maybe you and I can think about... Um, some of the art that we've really enjoyed that had a political uh, response. What's interesting to me is some of the art in China, the contemporary art from China, is that it's very difficult to tell if it's pro or anti-communist. And I think that's some of the magic of the art coming out of China in the last 30 years. And I mean, we could certainly talk about Goya and different things like that sometime in the future, about art that has this kind of political content or, um, you know, Certainly for me, my stance would be a, a novel like Blood Meridian or Apocalypse Now are two of the greatest anti-war um, units ever created, you know. Um, so that's something we could kind of look at in the future. And certainly uh, we could also uh, look to shifts in contemporary art today. Yeah. You know, when when I was a young man... Uh, making paintings galore and thinking, hey, I'd like to spend a lifetime thinking about making images. The artwork that I looked at were from two sides. On the one hand, abstraction, which I was completely vexed and fascinated with. And I've spoken, I think, previously about seeing a John Meredith painting at the Art Gallery of Ontario Mm. that just nagged at me uh, Mm. for the longest time. And as I was trying to get my brain around abstraction and painting. Um, But the other thing that really sealed the deal in terms of becoming a painter was seeing Guernica in New York, Picasso's Guernica, uh, 1938 uh, painting, uh, huge, huge, powerful painting which stopped me in my tracks and so i came to uh i came to making art with both those kind of polar approaches in mm-hmm. my mind mm-hmm. uh and i think what one thing that we're seeing today is a shift away from the modern sensibility uh to work that is often much more political. Uh, And I can think of, for instance, 
an exhibition that you and I have both seen, mm -hmm. which is the Kent Monkman exhibition oh. at the uh, at the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum. Right. We've got to talk about that. Um, Steg and I, one of the reasons we went to Canada was one, to see our family and enjoy the holiday season of March break, but to see Kent Monkman. What a beautiful show. Steg said he didn't know acrylic could look like that. Well, it was also in a unique context in the museum amongst artifacts from the museum mm -hmm. at a time when the biggest discussion in in museums is about what stuff should we have and what stuff mm -hmm. should we give back and how do we do that and how do we come to those conclusions? How do we right. talk about that? Uh, and the Kent Monkman exhibition certainly uh, brings that to the fore, um, as well as uh, bringing uh, Native history, uh, First Nations history in, in our country to the fore. Uh, yes. Very, and very powerfully. So the setting, first of all, was not in an art museum. It was not in an art gallery. It was in the Royal Ontario Museum. A, a cultural um, institution known for cultural appropriation and sheer theft, as well as the international museums. They all have, they've stolen totem poles and indigenous art from around the world, African art. And um, so that is something that we're all kind of sitting with. So to have that displayed in that yeah. institution. Yes, and including um, the discussion that, um, that work is stolen. I think when that work was first acquired and displayed, the people who acquired and displayed it didn't think they were stealing it. They didn't see things that way. Um, that because I think that it was, uh, well, it was colonial. Yes, I understand they, they didn't feel they were stealing. I, I do understand that. Uh, um, but we look I at things we'll... a little bit different now. And I think finally the museum world is coming around to looking at, at things in a different way and trying to come to terms with it. I think it's very, very difficult. Right. They've got um, the stuff. Now what do they do with it? Yeah. The, the situation with what defines, partly defines entitlement is not thinking about that you thought you were entitled to take other countries' property and take it back to you. It is a kind of a war, but we can leave that for now. It is It is something. I understand that they didn't think they were stealing. They thought they were preserving well, or conserving. And, you know, not very long ago, um, Native groups had an audience with the Pope. He happily showed off uh, the, the, the papal collection of uh, First Nations artifacts, mm -hmm. um, which if they didn't steal, one has to ask well, how they got them. <laughs> Right, correct. And um, never mind the Pope and the Spanish Inquisition's situation in terms of stealing, stealing culture, stealing lives, stealing children. Um, so all of that comes in. There's a painting where all these, you know, the residential murders, uh, residential school murders in Canada that has been come out in the last three years and then the sheer depressing numbers of children that were murdered. Um, is contrasted with some of these paintings and literally portrayed by Kent Monkman, who is a gay indigenous artist. And he has a painting of children with Mounties surrounding them. And I'm definitely, you know, the Mounties is this um, cultural stereotype promoting tourism or whatever with Canada. And I took a bunch of pictures. I'll share them on Facebook and Instagram. And one of the paintings that was particularly special to me was a at the end of the exhibition is a portrait of iconic personalities 
um, and, mm -hmm. and cultural leaders. And one of them is Pauline Shirt. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to say her name and I'm, I'll, her other name, is, her proper name is Nima Kikwai. And she created Wandering Spirit Survival School, of which was an Ojibwe immersion school, which my daughter attended. So um, I haven't told my daughter she's going to go see it, but that this painting is in there. I know she'll be very surprised when she sees it. Or, or maybe not surprised, she'll be touched and um, it'll stir up a lot of uh, memories for her. Uh, the paintings are stunning, they're huge, they're massive, and they're gorgeous in their own right, political or not political. There's a painting of a bunch of dinosaurs, and um, they're like mini dinosaurs, and then there's mini fairies. There's little gnomes and fairies that are magical creatures, and um, we saw a little girl run by, she was about seven, and these dinosaurs are um, very brightly colored, and she runs by, why are they rainbow? Why is everything rainbow? I was like, well, I hope her parents tell her. <laughs> That's a discussion for... Uh, um, education right there. Um, boy, stunning show. If you're anywhere able to travel to Toronto to see it, I highly recommend it. Yes, in a, in a totally appropriate venue uh, for the content of the work. It's really brilliant. Yes. Uh, and I think it's the it's the art show of the year to see uh, I, up here I think in Toronto. It, I, th I absolutely agree. I think it's an art show that takes your breath away. It's an absolute art show that makes made me want to go home and paint made stag want to go home and paint immediately and that's what the great art does it makes us feel generative and excited thanks for remembering about the kent monkland um eugene we also got another um missive we got a, a little message um through facebook uh by a listener of the podcast and a friend of uh stags and um his name is stefan aka stefan aka cool cat and he heard he knows that we are asking people write us what you're thinking what you're feeling what movies you like well he has taken up the cause and he wrote a list of movies it's a big list and i'm gonna make my way through it okay okay so and, and as you start yes. uh, we'd like to ask our listeners to think about yes. your own list we'd like to get a dozen different lists and we'll we make would. the master list we the would love it list. oh i love that idea eugene um and a lot of these are very, probably a lot of people have seen these. Apocalypse Now, Hearts of Darkness. The story behind making this movie is almost as good as the movie itself. From Martin Sheen's drinking, Coppola's near collapse during the movie, and Dennis Hopper being Dennis Hopper. Naturally, the love for the actual movie comes first. Um, did you ever see Hearts of Darkness? His wife made it, Coppola's wife? No, I did not. Okay. All right. Goodfellas. I'm half Italian. I simply have no choice but to love this movie. What can you say about it other than Scorsese? Vanilla Sky. Not entirely sure why I love this one. The soundtrack, cinematography, and overall editing and writing is what struck with me, stuck with me, regardless of Family Guy calling it an abortion. <laughs> Do you know Family Guy? Mm -hmm. TV show, yeah. Um, Manhunter. The first appearance by Hannibal Lecter. Great writing, great everything. I'm a mm, sucker. I enjoyed the book too. Yes, me too. Oh yeah, um, great point. Um, I'm a sucker for Michael Mann and William Peterson, and so am I. To live and die in L.A. Have you ever seen that movie, Eugene? It's an old classic so. from the '80s. Um, God, what a great cast! The first movie to make me go wow at an ending. Did not feel like a typical Hollywood film. Collateral. Sucker for that Michael Mann, Tom Cruise. Sold me on it as well. Say what you will about that maniac. The man can act. Plus, Think plus, he does yeah. his own stunts. He does his own stunts. That's right. <laughs> 
think the jazz scene cemented my love for this one. Schindler's List. Probably the first movie to take a bit of my soul away. Probably as close as you could get to that area in time without getting an NC-17 rating. American Werewolf in London. My first ever horror film as a young man. The beginning of this one will always be stuck with me. I will never want to walk through a field in the rain with a full moon in play. Not to mention another phenomenal ending. Humor mixed throughout was a nice balance. Star Wars Return of the Jedi. Most will say Empire Strikes Back, but that Vader-Luke battle along with the orchestral music, I'm also a sucker for individual scenes. We Own the Night. Real random one here, but I loved every aspect of this one. There's a car chase scene in it that gave me goosebumps, a rare aspect since the French connection. Gallipoli, when Mel Gibson was still Australian. I love that one. One of the few movies to make me tear up with the ending. One of the few solid WW1 films. Midnight Express made me stay away from heroin and turkey to this day. Yeah, yeah me too. Plus, movies based on true stories tend to be a bit different. The Hitcher, Rutger Hauer, man, what a bad guy in a film. Another non-typical ending that sticks, but Hauer made every aspect of this for me. Cool Hand Luke, the man that originally made me want to be a rebel. How could you not look into those blue eyes for two hours? Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, two of the most beautiful men in, to grace the screen. Just a feel-good movie all around, with icons to boot. The good, the bad, and the ugly. One of those... Man's Man films, naturally, probably my favorite out of the bunch, felt like a saga of sorts within one film. If I ever ride a horse, it'll be the, to the music of this movie. The Color of Money made me think I could play pool. Throw in a little Newman and you have a classic. A young, cool Tom Cruise certainly helped. Fight Club. <clears throat> Who didn't strive for that Brad six-pack? Mostly made me want to fight and bring down the system. Made me feel all the feelings. Loved it. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest probably had the first character I truly hated. Any film that invokes that much of an emotional reaction in me must be good. Must be great. Still indifferent on nurses. <laughs> Easy Rider. Another ending I never saw coming. The madness of Jack Nicholson was on point. Probably the character that stuck with me. Interstellar. I'm the biggest sucker for anything space related. Absolutely loved Matthew. Who saw that guy coming up as one of the best? Soundtrack, I still listen to. I just saw Interstellar with Sheila the other night. I love that. I love it. Did you enjoy it? I didn't see all of it. I, I came upstairs. <laughs> she had it on. And so uh -huh. I saw much of it. I I really enjoyed the fact that, that they had honest-to-God physicists involved with the making yes. of the film. Yes. yes. Uh, it had half of Hollywood was in this film. Yes. Uh, when Matt when Matt Damon appeared in the film, I just thought, well, hell. <laughs> I <laughs> well, mean, it wasn't also... Matt Damon's best role, but, you know, right. um, it it had, I mean, it was kind of sappy in a way at the end. Mm -hmm. But, well, yeah, uh, the father-daughter story. They're highly creative. Highly creative. Pretty darn interesting and unusual. I thought the science fiction was really good, and that's, helps with the physicists on board. I loved it. I loved the reenactment of Tesseracts. And Tesseracts take place in one of my favorite books, the Re A Wrinkle of Time. So to me, it was very stunning to see that all being acted out and a way to portray, not unlike everything all at once, a family drama in a new setting. 
that mm-hmm. was very exciting in competing with action films yeah, in a new, good more, point. a more emotionally developed way. And then, of course, action. Um, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Long with an ending, I still only partially understand to this day. You and me both, baby. Um, I think the ending means that we are born in space and we're one with the universe, but I don't know. Um, probably what made me fall in love with outer space, along with a small hatred towards machines and anyone named Hal. Yes. The writing, spirited away, spirited away, the writing, the art that is in the film itself, all of it. Another feel good for me. A reality and animation that never seems to falter, no matter my age. The Professional. Um, Eugene, this is my father's favorite film. He raved about it, freaked out about it, absolutely loved it. That's an odd one to be anyone's favorite film. Yeah. It's, a, it's a curiosity. You it know, is. With the kid and the killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, very well done. Very powerful film. I, always I, I saw it, it uh, again, I think maybe a year or so ago, and oh. it seemed to hold up fairly well for me. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I I never really, I didn't really talk with my dad about what appealed to him. Um, maybe the fact that he had daughters, you know, I, that's what I assumed, was that he had daughters and he had that memory of when we were young and we were his buddy, you know? Um, and so uh, Stefan says, or Stefan, or AKA Cool Cat. Um, the unconventional endings get me every time. Love the acting in this. Parts just really raw for me. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind changed my entire viewpoint on Jim Carrey. Really love the writing and narration on it. Quentin Tarantino. Let's just say everything. Can't pick one. The man. I love his style, writing, cinematography. Such a sucker for Tarantino. I concur. I love everything he does. Some people might say there are two kinds of people in this world. Those (laughs) people who love everything Quentin Tarantino ever did and everybody else. But of course, you might say that there's two kinds of people in this world. Those who think there's two kinds of people in this world (laughs) and everybody else. Yeah, that's true. Um, You know, the thing is a bad Tarantino movie is still a hundred times better than most other people's movies. Um, You know, it's going to be lively and creative and fun. Yes, yes, yes. And brutal. And brutal, yep. And strong women. So for me, I guess that's why I like it, you know? But I can't say I like all of his films. Um, I didn't like that Western one, the eight one. Oh, really? I would have thought that'd be right up your alley. I thought that the the stylized dialogue just wasn't very successful. Right. And yeah, no, I just yeah. didn't do it the for parlor me. parlor mystery. It's kind of like a parlor mystery, that one. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed it. Is it on my top? No. I mean, I'm Kill Bill and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Jackie Brown, to me, is really one of the greatest films. And I think it's going to have an incredible longevity. I like Um, Jackie Brown, too. I thought that was a fine film that maybe got underrated. It's underrated. That's why I say over time, I believe it's going to have a profound longevity, you know, in film school and everything. Yeah. Love them, love them, love them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for two um, correspondences this week. We really appreciate it. We'd love other people to write us about anything. See, we read it. We're not judgy. (laughs) We may not be able to respond like intellectually, but we love it. I think that um, Vox really blew our minds with a very well-researched for him. uh, He would spend a lot of time on that. We really appreciate it. You can write us a few sentences. You can write us a few sentences.